0: Welcome to the Veterans for Peace radio hour and podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Uh, as uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, was lead
1: author of U.S. nuclear warfighting doctrine uh, under uh, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and briefly Nixon, as he said, The notion common to nearly all Americans that no nuclear weapons have been used since Nagasaki is mistaken. Again and again, generally in secret from the American public, U.S. nuclear weapons have been used in the precise way that a gun is used when you point it at someone's head in direct confrontation, whether or not the trigger is pulled.
0: That was Joseph Gerson, President of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, and Vice President of the International Peace Bureau. Since 1976, he has served the American Friends Service Committee as director of the Peace and Economic Security Program. But first, my name is Harvey Bennett. I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran, Jim Wolgemuth. We are members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace Human Dignity, Equality, and Justice. Go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations around the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, and your local phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to thegreenpartyoftennessee.org. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. We are fortunate to be able to participate with the Veterans for Peace No Nukes Group because it gives us a chance to work on one of the most critical existential threats we face today. And also provides us with the audio of special guests who speak at our meetings. Today, we will
2: share our last meeting with special guest Joseph Gerson. Dr. Gerson is president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security and vice president of the International Peace Bureau. Since 1976, he has served the American Friends Service Committee as director of the Peace and Economic Security Program. He's written books, which include With Hiroshima Eyes, Atomic War, Nuclear Extortion, and Moral Imagination, and Empire and the Bomb. How the US uses nuclear weapons to dominate the world. And and uh, Joseph, Dr. Gerson, you were also at the meeting of states parties on the treating on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, right? That's correct. Very good, very good. Well, with that, Welcome to No Nukes.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you
2: for doing this, and
1: you know, I'm 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 glad about you know the commitments that 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 each of you have. Let me say a couple of more words in terms of some of my bona fides, and then we'll then we'll we'll run here. Uh, simply to say that um, uh, I sort of awakened to the urgency of nuclear disarmament uh, in 1973 when Henry Kissinger. Uh, Placed a, uh, created a, a, a DEFCOM alert um, it, 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 it period when we thought the um, October War in the Middle East was, was, was already over, and that led me to be checking out quite a bit, and I'll say more about that later. Uh, I was involved in about 1979, 80, in launching the nuclear weapons freeze movement, and then in 1983, with partners here in the Boston area, we prevented an effort to turn Boston Harbor into a nuclear weapons base, including working with the former operations officer of the, uh, of, the third, of the Third Fleet, who came to Boston and testified about the Navy's history of nuclear weapons accidents. And that uh, circuitously and unexpectedly led me to Japan, where I've worked now for almost 40 years uh, with A-bomb survivors in the Japanese movement. A lot of what I'm gonna be doing is kind of uh, analytical and historical. Uh, but I wanted to kind of begin us with a sense of the urgency and take us into the heart of the issue. You know, the reality is that uh, we face daily the existential threat of, 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 of nuclear war could be created by accident and incident, uh, or even potentially out of out of uh, considered policy decisions. The, the reality is that in the face of, of this threat, along with climate, uh, the climate threat, It's it's really insane uh, for people not to be uh, addressing this, to be learning about it, and doing what we can to prevent it. Uh, I I wanted just to start with our with our headline today. Uh, You know, we know the FBI went into Mar-a-Lago, and the Washington Post is reporting that among the things that they went after were highly highly secret uh, nuclear nuclear plans, nuclear documents. Why on earth Trump would have them? Except maybe for blackmail, uh, maybe as a danger of proliferation, we don't know. But just to appreciate on a daily basis now the 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 kind of madness uh, that we that we face. As we start, I wanted to appreciate uh, the Vets for Peace Nuclear Posture Review. Uh, you know, Jerry, among others, was involved in in launching it, and you know, just to say it, it had a number of recommendations. These are just a few of them. Uh, but I, I thought to begin this with, with an appreciation, uh, you know, calling for uh, no first use. The U.S. policy is to uh, prepare it to, to initiate nuclear war under certain circumstances. I'll come back to that later. Uh, the president alone has the authority to to launch, even if he is uh, mad. Uh, and uh, calling for decommissioning the, the ICBMs uh, and the, the theater missile defenses. Um, you know, we have an urgent need to be uh, moving to to um, basically reinforce uh, treaties that have either been, been uh, uh, negotiated or to fulfill our obligations, especially the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, uh, which really was one of the seminal treaties of the 20th century uh, and requires the nuclear powers to engage in uh, nuclear uh, good faith negotiations for complete nuclear disarmament abolition. The NPT review conference is taking place now at the United Nations, but the reality is that the nuclear powers, led by the United States, have been resisting their responsibility to fulfill that that commitment. You know, the reality is that um, the the Bulletin the Atomic Scientists uh, warns with their doomsday clock that we're a hundred seconds to midnight, which is to say a hundred seconds uh, from uh, the apocalypse. To put that in perspective, just in terms of how dangerous the situation is. Uh, In 1962, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, when at the height of the crisis, the uh, Kennedy Executive Committee its members thought the chances that we would have a a nuclear exchange uh, were about 50-50. At that time, the clock was set at 7 minutes to midnight. So just to appreciate how dangerous the moment is. And as you can see here, this is in in, in the uh, Peace Park in Hiroshima. Uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Gutierrez, uh, reminded us that today humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We don't want to think about it. We want to go about our daily lives. Uh, But this is the reality we face. Uh, Many years ago, I was privileged to work with uh, Dr. Joseph Roplat. Roplat was the one senior scientist in the Manhattan Project, the project that created the first uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, he was the only one in that project to quit uh, out of moral considerations, uh, thinking that the, the, the development and the use of the bomb was wrong. He He became a Nobel Peace Laureate, and among the things he said was that in the long term, there are only two alternatives. Allow the possession of nuclear weapons to all states that desire them, which would mean inevitably nuclear war, or deny them to all states by eliminating nuclear weapons. And as he, he said, you know, why, why is such proliferation inevitable? He said, look, no nation is going to tolerate what it deems to be an unjust um, relationship of power, or in this case, terror. And, you know, we see this at this point, among other things, with the concerns about uh, possible proliferation to, to Iran, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and in the wake of the Ukraine war, there are demands in uh, Japan and in South Korea uh, to become uh, nuclear weapon states, or at least have U.S. nuclear weapons deployed in their countries. You can see here Article 6, which makes the commitment to um, uh, to abolition.
3: Um,
1: one of the things I wanted to begin with is, you know, I think in our culture, in our political culture, the, uh, the idea that the atomic bombs uh, ended the war, uh, Truman's lie that they saved uh, half a million lives, uh, serves as, I think, the legitimizing myth behind the um, uh, development and, and 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 threatened use of nuclear weapons by our country. Uh, General Eisenhower uh, said the Japanese were ready to surrender. It wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. Um, Admiral Leahy, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, opposed it, saying it was not necessary to use that barbarous weapon. Uh, and Secretary of State Burns, who was really Truman's mentor, later explained that we wanted to get through with the Japanese phase of the war before the Russians came in. There were multiple reasons for the atomic bombing, but the defining, definitive reason uh, was to uh, try to prevent uh, the need to, to share influence with the Russians in Northern China, in Manchuria, uh, or in Korea, all of which failed. Uh, these are uh, some pick, two pictures from Hiroshima, uh, one from the immediate aftermath, the other is what I think of as really being the most sacred place in the Hiroshima Peace Park. It's a little bit to the side; a lot of people don't know about it. It's it's a mound uh, with an altar in front of it, uh, and buried in that mound are the ashes of perhaps ten thousand people who were not identified uh, and who were incinerated uh, by by the bomb. Um, just by way of background here, for people who don't know, in the uh, you know most immediately and then, then over a little bit of time, by the end of the year, seventy thousand people in Hiroshima had died as a result of the uh, a bombing uh, and uh, many of the victims uh, wounded and poisoned by radiation uh, died over the you know succeeding um, uh decades. I wanted to point out, and this is something I think little known to most most Americans. Uh, is that there are a number of nuclear weapons victims who are not Japanese. Uh, On the one hand, there were Koreans who were, in many cases, forced laborers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Many of them died, but but others uh, became hibakusha. Uh, But also here in the United States, uh, many um, uh, military veterans, men in the military, women in the military, mostly men, uh, we're, we're exposed to to radiation intentionally. Uh, soldiers were ordered to march into uh, into the area of radioactivity. Uh, they wanted to learn uh, what the impacts of radiation would be on our fighting forces in in, in battlefield use of nuclear weapons. So, my friend Claudia Peterson uh, from Utah, uh, her father and father-in-law both died of cancer from um, mining the uranium. Uh, her uh, sister died of, uh, of of radiation from from fallout from the tests, and this is her at the site of her son's grave. Uh, also died as a result of the of the radiation, and there are really many many thousands of nuclear weapons victims here, uh, but also in every other country uh, that 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 has nuclear weapons in the process of developing or manufacturing them. Um, just to get a sense of the distribution of nuclear weapons, the United States and Russia uh, have about 93% of the world's nuclear weapons, uh, but other nations you know, have, what, 300, 350, 165. Uh, you know, the launch of 160 nuclear weapons, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, climate scientist uh, Robach at, at Rutgers University tells us not only would kill you know, millions and millions of people, uh, but the uh, fire and smoke from it uh, would go into the atmosphere, would remain in the atmosphere for about 10 years, uh, and would result in a global cooling uh, leading to famine across the northern hemisphere uh, with uh, at least 2 billion people being vulnerable to to death by by famine. Uh, we tend not to think of NATO as a nuclear alliance. I mean, NATO, as some of you will know, has really become a global alliance. The uh, this new strategic doctrine uh, calls not only for um, containing Russia, uh, but now also China. Uh, and we have two, two new members, they're not formally yet, but they're joining, um, Sweden and Finland. Uh, and uh, you know, we have uh, US, U.S. nuclear weapons uh, in, what, five or six uh, of the Western European uh, NATO members under what's called the nuclear sharing program. This is basically designed in large measure to um, uh, prevent Europe from going its own way. Um, But one of the conditions, and NATO was a nuclear alliance, uh, they had to to accept to concede uh, that they're willing to support the use of nuclear weapons as a condition for joining the the alliance. Um, Also, people should be aware that the United States is uh, on track now to be spending about two trillion dollars—a number I can't really fathom—to uh, uh, upgrade, uh, actually replace its entire nuclear arsenal uh, and uh, all of its delivery systems. Uh, so that means the bombers, the submarines, uh, and the um, and the missiles. Uh, and of course, you know, they're not basically this. This commits the United States. Uh, to maintaining nuclear weapons as the cornerstone of U.S. policy you know, throughout the 21st century. Other nations are also upgrading their, other nuclear weapons. states are also upgrading their nuclear arsenals. And we're in a period now uh, of an increasingly unrestrained nuclear arms race, uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, and in the context, in the, in the wake of the uh, uh, Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, and the before that, the you know, the U.S. basically renouncing uh, every nuclear arms control agreement except for the New START treaty. It's absolutely urgently important that we find ways to engage in strategic dialogue with both Russia and China. Um, you know, the current crisis. Uh, again, we've, we've become inured to the daily headlines. Right? We we learn about the um, artillery nature of the war, uh, uh, the Russians being slowed down but but gaining ground slowly. Uh, but you know, from the beginning, it's been clear that this is potentially a Cuban missile crisis in slow motion. So the, the Russian nuclear doctrine mandates the use of nuclear weapons uh, when the security of the Russian state is in jeopardy. Well, you know, we're in a period now, obviously, where Putin is the Russian state. Were the war to, uh, to be drawn out, say like the Afghanistan war, uh, which uh, bleeds Russian power and uh, influence and resources, uh, that could lead to a desperate action uh, to to end the war, the use of uh, so-called tactical nuclear weapons to terrorize uh, Kiev uh, into, into signing to a, an agreement. Uh, it's also possible uh, if uh, uh, Zelensky or actually Biden have their way and Russian military forces face defeat, that they could also resort to the first use of nuclear weapons. That's very dangerous, obviously. Also dangerous is the fact that U.S. doctrine, and this is from uh, talking points uh, put out the, uh, in response to the uh, Biden um, uh, Nuclear Posture Review. They, they didn't adopt the VETS Nuclear Posture Review, but this is the, the Pentagon's. The, the U.S. policy mandates the use of nuclear weapons quote, when its vital interests and those of its allies and partners are threatened. So we need to understand You know, Ukraine is certainly a U.S. partner uh, and we're, as Kissinger said, uh, were the, the the Russians to use nuclear weapons, the United States would likely res- respond in in, in kind. Uh, here's you know the statement from Putin, uh, which um, there've been several others in which he's essentially threatened the use of, of nuclear weapons, and then he's backed off of it. Uh, but it, it's 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 been threatened. Um, and what we what, what's been missing uh, is the fact that the United States has done this probably at least thirty times since uh, after the bombing of of Nagasaki. Uh, As uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, was the lead author of US nuclear warfighting doctrine uh, under uh, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and briefly, Nixon, he said, the notion common to nearly all Americans that no nuclear weapons have been used since Nagasaki is mistaken. Again and again, generally in secret from the American public, US nuclear weapons have been used in the precise way that a gun is used when you point it at someone's head in direct confrontation, whether or not the trigger is pulled. he knows about it because he designed those policies. Uh, You know, I've learned a lot from Noam Chomsky over the years. Uh, And uh, some time ago, uh, Noam uh, did a kind of deconstruction of testimony by then US Secretary of Defense Brown, uh, a a policy of commitment, which has been uh, reiterated a number of times recently. Basically, as he said, Uh, Our strategic nuclear weapons system provides us with a kind of umbrella within which we can carry out conventional actions, meaning aggression and subversion, without any concern that it will be impeded in any fashion. Uh, So this is what we've done time and and again. uh, I'll I'll go through the list uh, shortly. Uh, But uh, simply to say that this is what Putin has done. uh, And with his nuclear threat, uh, he managed to warn the West uh, from, for example, uh, establishing a no-fly zone uh, over uh, over Ukraine. And so this is this is one way, anyhow, that they are used. Um, we you know, have the illusion uh, that uh, you know the foundation of our nuclear policies uh, are deterrence. Uh, but uh, again, uh, you know, we briefly had the honest uh, um, uh, defense policy guidance from uh, from from the W. Bush administration. Before the criticism poured in and they pulled it down. It said the focus of US deterrence efforts is to influence potential adversaries with to, to withhold actions intended to impact uh, US national interests. Central focus of deterrence is for one nation to exert such influences over a potential adversary's uh, uh, decision-making process. So, you know, we've consistently used uh, our, our nuclear weapons. Uh, to ensure our ability to control the sand, or rather the oil, under other nations' uh, sand. I have to say, um, again, going back to the Ukraine war, uh, now about 10 days ago or two weeks ago, I was part of a very small group of, of people who were in an off-the-record meeting with one of the most senior members of the U.S. Congress responsible for um, uh, U.S. military uh, policies. Uh, unfortunately, I can't say who he was. And in in that call, he repeatedly and explicitly said he was willing to risk nuclear war to ensure that the Ukrainians can regain control over their uh, Black Sea coast. Uh, I have to say, absolutely chilling uh, for someone of such power and authority to be talking about his willingness to risk nuclear war. Uh, And the dangers are real and they're increasing. Eric Schlosser wrote a really important book, and he also made a film based on it command and control. And what he points out is that uh, we have a long history of accidents, of miscalculations. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had insubordination. Uh, There's the danger of cyber hacking, uh, terrorism, and failures of of deterrence, all of which could trigger a a nuclear war. Uh, Again, uh, uh, but during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, we had at least two two, uh, circumstances in which uh, military officers uh, violated uh, the 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 orders of the Kennedy administration. We tend to think that uh, presidents and, and governmental leaders have total tro- control over their nuclear weapons. But at one point, uh, a general uh, increased the level of the nuclear alert in a way that was secret to the US people, uh, but could be seen uh, by the Russians. Uh, it was his way of trying to rub their noses uh, in it, uh, but it, it risked. Uh, you know, a, 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 an unknown response on their part. The other, of course, uh, took place at a time when there was uh, an order, negotiations were, were underway between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Uh, and the orders were for uh, our naval forces in the Caribbean uh, basically to hold their fire uh, to keep things peaceful so Khrushchev could consider the proposal that Kennedy had sent. But for folks in the Navy on destroyers, what better opportunity to practice depth charging? And so they were depth-charging uh, uh, Soviet submarines. In one case, the submarine uh, losing oxygen was increasingly in danger of being sunk. Uh, and the, the, the Soviet policy at the time uh, was that uh, one commanding officer couldn't launch their nuclear, their nuclear torpedoes. It took the, the joint decision by the three commanding officers. Two of them wanted to launch. A third one said no. And that's why we're here to talk about it, so then uh, a long history of the u s nuclear threats uh It began in nineteen forty six uh, when the Russians the Soviets were slow to withdraw from iran uh, the u s had encouraged them to to occupy Iran uh, so we could supply we could supply them with with the war materials in the war against Hitler. They were then slow to to leave uh Truman called the Russian ambassador into the uh, Oval Office and said if the uh, withdrawal didn't begin within 48 hours, um, uh, Moscow would cease to exist. Uh, the withdrawal began within 24 hours. A, a long list here, um, you know, almost most frequently in relationship to the Middle East. Uh, I want to focus here on, on 1973, which was sort of the wake-up call for me, as I said before. Uh, the the um, Middle East war was, we thought, over. This was, this was the um, so-called October War. Uh, the Israelis had pushed the uh, Egyptian army back across the Suez Canal uh, and was basically threatening to to move all the way into Egypt. Um, there was ostensibly a ceasefire, uh, but with uh, Kissinger's blessings, remember this is a time when when Nixon is totally drunk as he's facing Watergate, and and, and Kissinger's running U.S. policy. Uh, And uh, the Israelis have surrounded the Egyptian Third Army. They're denying it water and food, uh, and they're increasingly desperate. Uh, So uh, Sadat, who was the the, the ruler then, uh, sent a message to both Kissinger and the the, the Soviet leader uh, saying the next day he was going to go to the United Nations uh, and urge them urged the UN to authorize the US and the Soviet Union to intervene uh, because he he risked the the further humiliation of the total loss of his Third Army. Uh, Kissinger had been trying to manipulate the outcome of the war to maximize US policy. He did not want the Russians to come in. Uh, And so uh, on on this October evening, he uh, did two things. He ordered a DEFCON alert, the, the, the mobilization of US nuclear forces. And the same, same time, he told Golda Meir, "Okay, it's over. Time to to uh, uh, break the blockade uh, of, the, of the of the Soviet forces." Um, and it was sometime after that. I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more. Uh, come 1982, I was involved in, in to a degree uh, in uh, helping to organize the the mass June 12th uh, demonstration you know, for nuclear disarmament uh, in New York. You know, a million people showing up, uh, and uh, Several days before uh, the, the war, uh, the uh, Israelis invaded Lebanon, going after the Palestinians. Uh, and I was aware that you know behind the you know the Israelis with the United States, and there was the possibility that the Syrians could intervene, and behind the Syrians would be the Soviets. So it was a dangerous situation. Um, the organizers of the of the of the rally had uh, in, in the deliberations um, and wanting to have the kind of the least common denominator, had said there'd be no speeches, no slogans, nothing against foreign military interventions. So I sort of went nuts uh, as we're approaching this, trying to get some speakers to address that reality. Uh, only one was willing to break discipline and do it. But after that, I spent quite a bit of time with Dan Ellsberg, uh, which led to my understanding of the relationship between US nuclear war preparations uh, and and US foreign military interventions. And you know, that led to the to to a couple of books. Just in terms of Asia, I mean, it's bigger even than than in the uh, uh, in in the Middle East. Um, you know, beginning with the uh, you know, Korean War, a number of of, of threats were made. Uh, Eisenhower uh, basically ran uh, for election in nineteen fifty two, uh, saying he could end the war. He had a secret plan, uh, and that secret plan uh, was to uh, threaten. Uh, China and, and North Korea with nuclear attack uh, if they wouldn't agree to U.S. terms in negotiating an uh, armistice. Uh, and in fact, it worked. Uh, at that time, Nixon was the vice president and he took the lesson from it. Uh, so we had in 1969, you know, as, as Nixon's running for president, he has a secret plan to end the war. We all thought that was you know just a big lie. In fact, he did. It was called his November Ultimatum, uh, and he sent word uh, to 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 the the Vietnamese uh, through several interlocutors, you know, uh, saying that if they you know, weren't willing to uh, basically agree to an end to the war on U.S. terms, uh, we would either hit them with with nuclear weapons or or destroy their their dam system. Uh, again, secret to the American people, uh, it was a massive mobilization of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, we had U.S. nuclear weapons flying up and down the, the Asian coast and along uh, the, the Russian coast, Soviet coast. Uh, we had nuclear weapons even based in, um, in, in in civilian airports like the Logan Airport here in Boston. Uh, B-52s lined up on runways armed with nuclear weapons in a way that the, 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 the Soviet surveillance could see. It went on for 29 days uh, and finally the military intervened and said, we can't maintain this level of mobilization uh, without, uh, without an accident uh, taking place. Uh, and you know, there were several other occasions you can see here uh, when the U.S. Uh, threatened nuclear war uh, during the, the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the Vietnamese didn't blink. Um, we also had a number of additional cases in relationship to um, Korea and three in relationship to, to China. And it's those nuclear threats to Korea uh, which you know, which have driven uh, the um, North Korean uh, nuclear program. Uh, and then, again, uh, those threats didn't end with the end of the Cold War. Here's a list of, what, two, four, six, eight, ten, well, more than a dozen U.S. nuclear threats uh, since the um, uh, uh, fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, uh, beginning with the, the first Gulf War. Uh, and again, used in the way that I described earlier, uh, the in the two uh, wars against Iraq, uh, the nuclear threats were made to prevent Saddam Hussein from using chemical weapons or otherwise attacking U.S. forces as they were being uh, assembled. Uh, you know, the we, we now have the, the you know the nuclear deal with Iran that we're trying to save, uh, but in the negotiations, Obama, you know, the the, the great peacemaker, uh, repeatedly said all options are on the table. Uh, when a nuclear power says all options are on the table, it means all options are on the table. Other nations have also made nuclear threats, not nearly as many as the United States. Uh, but you know, Russia maybe couldn't even pull it off during the Suez War in 1956. 1973, uh, Israel, uh, Golda Meir, uh, threatened the use of the so-called temple weapons. India and Pakistan, uh, the Chinese, um, uh, during the um, previous Taiwan crisis uh, and uh, North North Korea and, and Russia more recently, um, a number of lessons here from the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, that political and that you know one of the things that it's just as we think about the possibility of a, of an incident say growing out of the um, provocative actions taking place around around Taiwan, um, you know U.S. and and, and Russian or uh, Chinese warplanes. Or very, you know, their, their 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 war their warships in close proximity. If you have an incident, as you did actually when in the beginning of the, of the Bush W. Bush administration, uh, you know, the nationalist forces pushing for responses can go out of control. They can force leaders to make decisions that they might not otherwise uh, otherwise take. Um, yeah, and then just to say that looking at the increasing danger we have at the moment, uh, the U.S. is now in the process of um, upgrading, actually putting in a, a new series of um, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons uh, to be based in, in Europe. This is the b sixty-one twelve 12 warhead. Uh, this is a warhead that could be uh, it, it's, it's, it's power can be dialed up and down. Uh, so it could be 11 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, uh, or it could be only a fraction of the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, but the, and here's here's from a former head of the US Strategic Command, who said, if I can drive down the yield, uh, drive down therefore for the likelihood of fallout, et cetera, uh, does that make it more usable in the eyes of some president or national security decision-making process? And the answer is, it likely could be more usable. So we face at the moment with these uh, low-yield nuclear weapons also being deployed into the Pacific, of increasing the likelihood that in a crisis, uh, a president might order their order their use. Um, And here's uh, William Perry, former Secretary of Defense, who has been arguing against the deployment of the new uh, uh, air-launched cruise missile uh, for the for the same reason. You know we have. The, uh, obviously, the, the increased danger in, in Europe. Uh, and um, one of the things I want to stress here is that Taiwan has become really the geopolitical center of the struggle for world power. It's become the hinge. The stakes over Taiwan are enormous. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the history is complex. Uh, Taiwan has become a, um, a democratic society. Uh, it's been separated from China for 125 years, uh, which is long enough for a, uh, a, a, a unique culture uh, to, to, to develop. At the same time, from the Chinese perspective, uh, those 125 years were the result of foreign interventions, uh, an expression of the humiliation that China suffered for more than 150 years. Uh, and part of uh, the, the process of China restoring its dignity uh, is, is is reunification with Taiwan um, and you know, very, very powerful uh, nationalist forces in China pushing for that. Uh, initially, after Pelosi's visit, um, uh, Xi Jinping was severely criticized for not taking harsh enough action, uh, but that seems now to have um, uh, that criticism abated uh, with his basic uh, demonstration of the ability to blockade it. Why do I say it's the hinge of empire? Uh, because uh, the Biden administration has moved away from the one China policy, even though it says it still wants it. It's committed to defend Taiwan militarily. Taiwan cannot be defended militarily. Uh, and it's in order to ensure uh, that uh, China doesn't take Taiwan over militarily, one, one of the principal reasons for the, uh, for, for the U.S. first use doctrine. You know, there had been hope that um, Biden would follow through on his earlier statements uh, that you know the sole use of nuclear weapons should be for deterrence only. Uh, but uh, in the Nuclear Posture Review, the decision was made to hold on to a U.S. first strike doctrine. Uh, and one of the driving forces of that is it's the only way to ensure maybe uh, that China doesn't um, uh, take over Taiwan. In a situation where China does take over Taiwan, that will call into question the US uh, commitments, military commitments to its alliances in Europe and to its alliances across Asia. Uh, So that were were Taiwan to fall out of the US sphere, one should expect that the US imperial control, its influence in the world, would be significantly undermined. How dangerous is the situation? Uh, We need to bear in mind that it's not only the US, China, and Russia uh, that threaten our nuclear annihilation. Uh, India and Pakistan uh, um, have exchanged nuclear threats. Uh, They are heavily mobilized. uh, And um, as I I repeated before, if we have an exchange of even 100 uh, nuclear weapons between the two, uh, most of us are toast. Um, And then looking at how the world sees this, this is some years ago, Mohamed el who was the head of the IAEA, uh, the, the uh, International Atomic Energy Association, basically was, was saying, we have a big problem here in that the nuclear non-proliferation treaty essentially enforces a kind of nuclear apartheid. Uh, the idea that those nuclear weapon states, that, those countries that are nuclear weapon states and have the weapons can threaten others, whereas nations that are, don't have nuclear weapons are vulnerable. Uh, To 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 nuclear threat, and this is not a system uh, that that can endure. And we see this, you know, growing out of the Ukraine war. Ukraine inherited uh, the Soviet Union Soviet Union nuclear weapons. Uh, It gave them up with a guarantee that that their sovereignty and territorial integrity would be respected, and then it wasn't. And so this is raising questions in a number of countries about whether or not they should uh, try to obtain nuclear weapons. We face what's called a Thucydides trap, uh, the inevitable tensions uh, between um, uh, rising and declining powers. Uh, and so you know, the, the need for us to intervene, and a number of people are making recommendations for what should be done. In relationship to the United States and China, uh, the United States adopting a no first use doctrine. Chinese already have one, and they've been telling us that if the US moves to no first use, it could be the foundation for serious uh, negotiations between the two countries. We need to reestablish the strategic and economic dialogue. Uh, we need to reaffirm the one-China policy, and we need to halt the provocative military actions by our military uh, in the South China Sea and around Taiwan. In relationship to the U.S. and Russia, Nobel laureates have urged that the United States and and Russia to declare that they will not use nuclear weapons in this in this in this war. They haven't done it. Uh, we need to be pressing for uh, ceasefire negotiations uh, to end the, uh, the the Ukraine war. Uh, you know, beyond that, we need to be thinking about how to reestablish uh, new, you know, renewed strategic stability uh, between the two great nuclear powers, uh, and to begin uh, disarmament negotiations again between them. Uh, one one of the calls coming out of the Europeans right now is a call for a meeting of the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's the foundation of detente, the foundation of the um, uh, European uh, security architecture through the 90s and basically until the, uh, the US uh, expansion of, uh, of NATO uh, broke the system. And then thinking in terms of arguments that we need to be making here in the United States, you know, what will $2 trillion buy, right? I mean, um, so many people still without medical care, housing, food. I mean, the list goes on. And the reality is that um, uh, in, in so many ways, the United States is is becoming a second-rate uh, society in terms of our technology, in terms of the infrastructure, and so on. And then, obviously, the climate. Uh, you know, one thing we don't think about is that the United States is essentially a coastal society. Um, you know, our major, most of our major cities Excuse, excuse to those in the Midwest, uh, are on the two coasts. Uh, it's going to cost trillions of dollars to protect our uh, big cities from the rising oceans. I mean, Miami already is often uh, under water. Uh, and we have to go far beyond uh, Biden's new climate bill, which uh, offers basically a 40% reduction in, in, in U.S. greenhouse gases. Uh, we've got to bring that down to, down to zero. And as mentioned in the beginning, I was at the first state's meeting of the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, A lot of countries are, excuse me, pissed off uh, at the nuclear power's refusal to fulfill their obligations uh, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And so uh, they negotiated, um, many of them, 122, uh, negotiated what's called the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which seeks to outlaw nuclear weapons and to impact the decisions of the nuclear weapons states. Uh, They just held their first meeting uh, uh, of of states parties in Vienna. uh, And uh, there were a lot of people there who showed showed the the, the force of the movement. And then growing out of, uh, principally out of Europe, is the campaign for Don't Bank on the Bomb, uh, urging um, our banks, our financial institutions, our pensions, not to be investing in companies uh, and to withdraw investments from companies uh, that make nuclear weapons. In the end, the reality is we're dealing with imperial power and its foundations. It's going to take mass movements for us to achieve nuclear disarmament. Um, you know, We need to find the slogans, the understanding, find the, the levers to uh, reignite a, 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 a mass popular movement, uh, both to uh, end the threat of nuclear weapons and climate change. Finally, uh, here are two books that I would recommend to people to take a look at. Uh, my my book, which kind of runs through the history of U.S. nuclear um, uh, weapons, uh, and the other is a more recent book by Fred Kaplan, uh, really a, a great journalist historian, uh, which is, in a sense brings brings it up to date. So I will close with that and be happy to um, take any questions that, that people have. Maybe I'll be able to answer them. First of
2: all, Joseph, that was um, uh, thorough, (laughs) wonderful and thorough. And, uh, you know, we've been we've been um, Harvey and I've been doing some shows and we had Jerry on and we've been talking about how do we talk to our neighbors about uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the danger that we're facing right now? Maybe I'll just ask you a question. So I'm, I'm not sure I, I have the answer to that. You know, I mean, among other
1: things, I haven't been to Hiroshima and Nagasaki as many times as I have, you know, the, the reality of it just so absolutely deep in my bones. Uh, but I think one thing, one way is simply to begin with questions rather than to be preaching ad. you know, I mean, what do you think about the possibility that, that the Ukraine war could, could lead to uh, a nuclear exchange or, you know, Weren't you surprised to find out that that Trump had nuclear secrets unauthorized at Mar-a-Lago? And do you have any idea what he might have been doing with them? I mean, just to open the conversation, maybe through questions rather than than, than speaking at.
2: All right. Very good. So we have to leave it there. But I want to share those books that Dr. Gerson referenced first before Harvey and I talk about what we've just heard. Uh, The first book, Empire and the Bomb by Dr. Joseph Gerson. And then there is The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War by Fred Kaplan. So we didn't have time to share all the Q&A, but Harvey and I did reflect on Dr. Gerson and then added some Kissinger fuel to the fire. Well, Harvey, that was Joseph Gerson. Yeah. What do you remember? What stood out? I know there was tons and tons of information. There was so much there. Yeah, I think the uh, weaponized
0: our <laughs> nuclear weapons without having to, uh, since we we're Hiroshima in Nagasaki, we haven't had to drop one. But we've, but we've, uh, <clears throat> we've, uh, you know, exploited that fact that we did drop them. Mm -hmm. on you know on civilians i mean these were not even military targets you know there were no military targets left in august of nineteen forty five and it's become clearer and clearer over the decades that uh, we have have seen our nuclear weapons as something we can use to coerce to to uh, terrorize,
2: to threaten countries that don't do what we want them to do. Exactly. And that was the thing that stood out for me, too, when he, he talked about, yeah, we we haven't dropped them, but we have used them. And he gave that example of just like somebody pulling a gun on you and putting it right to your head right, and, and not pulling the trigger. Right. I think that was a great analogy on oh, yeah. just exactly what we've been doing. We've mm-hmm. been putting the gun to the heads of mm-hmm. the people in so many countries mm-hmm. since Nagasaki. And so, they and, know and,
0: we're capable
2: of doing it. You bet. Because we did it. We've done it. I mean, so, and, and the list, the specific list of the specific instances he knew about, and you know, we know for a fact, I mean, Joseph is very smart and he's very in tune but if he knows about these in particular items there's got to be twice as many
0: maybe three and i didn't i never knew about most of the ones he even t- talked about i know
2: i know so
0: it was so it's it, not like we publicly threatened we use diplomatic channels to threaten yeah or we use third parties you know intermediary countries to pass the message on
2: exactly if it's on the table, that means it's on the table. Right.
0: When we say everything, everything is on the table, they, people know what that means. That's right. That's Obama right.
2: said that, Nobel Peace Laureate. Obama. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. Yeah. Right. So. But, you know, um, we've, we've done a lot with this nuclear existential threat that we're facing over the last... I don't know, since the, probably the Ukrainian war began. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and when we were talking about the treaty on uh, prohibition of nuclear weapons before, so people might think we're consumed by it, but <clears throat> one of those things where we've really got to pay attention because we are, uh, I think, in a really, really dangerous point, especially with the continued little drip, drip, drip of escalation it's, it's more dangerous than the average American is considering now, especially as the NFL gets going. I mean, (laughs) that's where, you know, we distract. Okay. So how are things going? So, um, I, I thought I found an article Well, I was referred to an article by, uh, Caitlin Johnston. And I think you saw it too. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those articles where you're thinking.
0: It's an article that she is commenting on another article.
2: <laughs> yes. And Wall Street Journal. Con- she says, Mr. Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, sees today's world as, a, as verging on dangerous disequilibrium. And then she quotes Kissinger. We are at the edge of war with Russia and China, China, on issues which partly, which we partly created. Henry admitting that we partly created these situations without any concept of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to, he says. Now, she goes on to say, could the U.S. manage? The two adversaries by triangulating between them as during the Nixon years, he offers no simple prescription. Kissinger goes on to say, You can't just now say we're going to split them off and turn them against each other. All you can do is not to accelerate the tensions and to create options. And for that, you have to have some purpose. Have to I wonder have. if
0: he called Nancy. <laughs> 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 I know. Biden didn't have the whatever it takes to call her. But exactly. You could have. So. Yeah. So as far as Kissinger's warning, uh, Caitlin Johnstone's comments, she said, I don't know about you, but to me, this warning from Kissinger is much, much more ominous coming from a blood soaked swamp monster like Kissinger. Than she also be. And it yep. would be from some anti-imperialist peace activist.
2: <laughs> exactly. Do you see later on in the article, she co- says, so Kissinger remains an unapologetic, warmongering psychopath.
0: Yeah. 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 Kissinger hasn't changed. No. Basically, he's a, he's literally a war criminal. There are, there are literally warrants for his arrest at The Hague. He can't go to Europe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure everybody knows, this is an article... By Caitlin Johnson, Johnstone, Johnstone dot com. Dot com. And it's dated aug- August 14th, today, 22, <laughs> in other words, today, because we're okay. recording this on the 14th and it's yeah. called Modern U.S. Warmongering is scaring Henry Kissinger.
0: Why is he now cautioning against U.S. aggression and warning that the empire has gone too far? Well, if Kissinger hasn't changed, we can only surmise that it is the U.S. empire itself that's changed. Its behavior is now so insane, so illogical, so deranged that it is making Henry Kissinger at age 99 nervous. And which, if you really think about it, is one of the scariest things you could possibly imagine. That's Caitlin Johnstone's take on it.
2: Yeah. I mean, right after... We had Joseph Gerson on to get this article because Gerson was so thorough in explaining all of the things. But now uh, Caitlin and Kissinger, and Caitlin explaining Kissinger, it really—if uh, you're not—if you're—if you're—if n- you're not upset already, and I hate to use the word scared, but if you're not at least anxious about what's going on already we you know what's it going to take the actual launching of a a tactical nuclear weapon to um um to drive the ukrainians out of a city or respond to more uh nato um saber rattling um or weapon. it
0: could be the tactical nuclear weapon in, on taipei
2: on taipei exactly And did you see, I just got an article maybe two hours ago where there's another congressional delegation. And I don't know who I think is Marky part of it. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. But it just landed in Taiwan. Marky? Marky. I thought he was one of the good guys. Here it is. U.S. congressional delegation arrives in Taiwan. So let me see if I can pull this up. And this is on from RT. Um, And that's that's short for Russian television. So a U.S. congressional delegation touched down in Taiwan on Sunday. Yep. And this is August 14th. So it is recent on Sunday for a two day visit. The lawmakers arrival comes less than two weeks after a separate visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sparked a flurry of military activity in the Taiwan Strait and sent relations between washington and beijing into a tailspin the visit to taipei was announced by the american institute in taiwan which functions as the u.s de facto embassy on self-governing um, on the self-governing island according to the institute here it comes according to the institute massachusetts senator ed markey oh my God. is leading the group democratic oh <clears throat> democrat representatives John Garamendi from California, Alan Lowenthal from California, and Don Byer from Virginia are accompanying Markey as is representative uh, Amua Amada Coleman Radic Sorry, a Republican from American Samoa. Mm. Uh, so yeah. I don't get it. Nancy got such bad press or maybe she got maybe she got good press at MSNBC and
0: look what's happened since she was there
2: I know so can we expect a military confrontation yeah we can can we expect another blockade um or a simulated blockade from China maybe I I mean
0: it could get worse than that
2: I think it should I think I don't think it should but I think it could for sure. For sure. I mean, what would what would you think if you were China
0: and you're saying this plus all the you know, we keep sending more weapons and more weapons to Taiwan? Are they going to wait until Taiwan has, te- you know, five times as much weaponry as they have right now? Or are they going to move while they can?
2: That's a question that I don't think anybody is considering within the Biden administration. I think they're once again poking uh, instead of the, the Russian bear. <clears throat> um, I don't know what animal is China but China. Um, yeah but they're poking it they're poking yeah. it
0: well and that's exactly what uh, Kissinger's talking about that nobody seems to know why they want why they're doing what they're doing what their goal is or you know <laughs> how it's gonna end they don't know
2: so we better stop right there and I guess we will just keep having these shows as long as the nuclear threat exists. We'll keep pointing out the escalation as it happens, even if it appears to be slow. We must get it stopped. So with that, a song, a song recommended by Jerry Condon, which really exemplifies the attitude and rationale of the U.S. So here are Bob Dylan and Joan Baez with God on Our Side.
3: Books tell it; they tell it so well. They count. Civil War II was soon laid away, and the names of the heroes I was made to memorize, with guns in their hands, and God on their side, the First World War. That it's fate. The reason for fighting, I never got straight. But I learned to accept it, accept it with pride. For you don't count the dead when God's on your side. Second World War.